I Am The Fly is a podcast about a brief time in the late 20th century, when you could find work at a dot-com as long as you knew how to type, when MTV still played videos, when you could download the entire discography of Brian Eno in a mere 12 hours, and you could hobnob with A-listers and still have no place to post it. I am your narrator, David Klein, and I am The Fly. In this episode, my best pal is marrying the girl from Ipanema, and I'm the best man. One of them, anyway. Come. Fly with me. Come on, everybody, let's take a trip to Brazil. Come on, everybody, let's take a I'm flying down to Rio with Stephen Mailer, who may be the funniest human being I've ever met. And I've met Joey Bishop. True story. In high school, my pal Pete was dating the daughter of Corbett Monica, a former Borscht Belt comedian who'd enjoyed moderate fame opening up for Sinatra as a frequent guest on Johnny Carson and Ed Sullivan, and as Joey Bishop's sidekick on The Joey Bishop Show, which ran for a couple seasons on CBS. His heyday was behind him, but he was still performing. Here's a typical Corbett joke. We had nine kids, nine. My father came home from work. He was afraid to ask, what's new? <laughs> nine kids, we all slept in the same bed. I never slept alone till I got married. <laughs> so Pete and I go to pick up Corbett's daughter one day, and Corbett's in his sunny suburban kitchen with some of his comedian pals, noshing on drinks and sandwiches. And I'm introduced to Joey Bishop. Joey says to me, what's your name? I tell him David. He says, how old are you, David? I tell him 18. 18, he says. I have ties that old. Stephen and I have been tapped to serve as co-best men at the wedding of Tommy Roberts, my oldest and best friend since our boyhood in Tenafly. Stephen and Tommy met much more recently, but they've become the fiercest of allies in life and sobriety. I first encountered Stephen Mailer at the screening of Crybaby, where I met Johnny Depp. Stephen had a featured role as Baldwin, the smug, preppy nemesis of Johnny's crybaby walker. Ah! Whoa! Mind your manners! This is what we think of your kind of music. <laughs> How dare you hit him! You don't own me, Baldwin. I have the right to hear crybaby sing. Don't get all worked up, honey. The punk got what he deserved. A few years later, Stephen and I met for real, when Tommy Roberts began hosting regular late-night poker games at the apartment we shared on Mercer Street. Stephen has a quick and dancing mind, superior vocal and physical mimicry skills, the ability to slip effortlessly into a newly invented character, and the sheer force of will to make a bit work that would fail mightily in the hands of less gifted souls. One night at a blackjack table with Tommy, he did Tony Montana's, Now you're talking to me, baby, and that I like. Every time he won. Into the wee hours. Steven's acting career was at its peak a good five years ago. He'd been on Broadway, alongside the likes of Nathan Lane, in Neil Simon's autobiographical, Laughter on the 23rd Floor, 
But the play didn't run very long, and in the ensuing years, he's only had a couple of small roles, playing a fed in a TV movie about the Waco standoff. In the gun department, he's bought everything he needs to fully automate semi-automatic weapons. And a brief scene in an Ang Lee movie that's not out yet. Stephen the actor is pretty much shifted to Stephen the husband, and as of a few months ago, Stephen the father. Tommy's finagled an excellent rate on a block of 10 rooms at the Beachside Marina Palace, a hotel in the upscale Le Blanc neighborhood, one of which Stephen and I will be sharing out of economic necessity. Spending a week in Rio will require some strategic frugality on my part, but at least I'm semi-solvent. As for my seatmate, the son of one of the 20th century's most celebrated novelists, Tommy noted in a recent email that Stephen's feeling very stressed about having $24 in his savings account. Tommy Roberts found the love of his life on Ipanema Beach. Just like in the song, he'd watched an enchanting someone walk to the sea and look straight ahead, not at he. But somehow, on that exquisite day in his beloved new home, Tommy summoned the moxie not only to rewrite an enduring classic, but family history too. In his youth, Tommy Roberts Sr. had befriended a Brazilian textiles magnate, as you do, and was this close to marrying the man's sister, a beautiful and gracious Carioca. Eventually, he backed off and married Tommy's volatile American mother to what I suspect was his lifelong regret. Rising to his pale, possibly sunburned feet, Tommy approaches this sumptuous vision on the sand and starts speaking to her in his undeniably excellent Portuguese. Tommy's a praying man, especially now in the 12-step era. And when the tall, tan, and impossibly lovely Isabella responds with an easy, and it should be said, flawless smile, and agrees to join him for dinner that very night, it feels like the miracle he's been waiting for. From there, things escalate fairly quickly, though not without a hitch. They survive a brief breakup and enjoy a sweet reunion tempered by realism. Subsequently, in lengthy emails, Tommy assures me that his mind is right. He just needed a little time to come to terms with things that weren't perfect about her. Our flight takes off at midnight from JFK, with an arrival mid-morning in Rio. We're amped up, talking like crazy, ready for adventure. Stephen orders a Diet Coke, me a glass of red wine, and he mentions Philip Seymour Hoffman, also a regular at Tommy's Poker Games, who will be joining us in a few days. Thanks to Tommy, I've had an insider's view of Phil Hoffman's career, having watched it unfold through Tommy's enthusiastic updates over the years. From, check it out. Phil's flying to Texas to film a movie with Steve Martin, Deborah Winger, and Meatloaf. That would be Leap of Faith, 1992, to You're Not Gonna Believe Who Phil Just Auditioned For, Al fucking Pacino. After Scent of a Woman, also 1992, in which he was still billed as Phil S. Hoffman. Did you, did you make this scarf yourself? No, George, I bought it. Yeah, because it's a beauty. Thank it really you, George. In, in case I don't see you before the Thanksgiving holidays, why don't you give me one of your big hugs? Oh, George. Please? Good evening, boys. Come on. <laughs> His rise became easier to chart on my own. Still, Tommy's intel brought me that much closer to Phil's magical ascent. I can't wait to discuss his recent performance as the chronic masturbator Alan in Happiness. I wanna pump her. Oh, pump, pump, pump. Stephen tells me that they first met through Bennett Miller, who would eventually direct Phil in Capote. I met Phil 
for the first time. I, I went to NYU for a, a brief period in the spring term of 1986. Bennett had been in a theater camp with Phil in high school. So Ben and I became fast friends when we were at, doing the Hangar Theater in New York. Right. And Phil lived in Rochester, and he came to visit one night. And uh, <laughs> we, we got drunk together. Yeah. And, yeah, and I couldn't really stand him. <laughs> um, yeah, something about him. I think we kind of had fun that day, but then, then we ended up hanging out a little bit. And then Phil, like, and Phil and I, whenever we saw each other, we were always drunk and didn't really like each other. And uh, I remember this one night, Phil, we were in Bennett's room partying, and we were playing <laughs> the Eagles. Phil turned it up really loud and, and put the speakers into the quad. <laughs> They were blasting, the music was blasting into the quad. And Phil's like, you know, people need to hear, like, it's Friday night, man. People need to party. They need to hear this great. I thought Phil was crazy. We were basically the same animal, but just sort of, you know, used by alcohol. Yeah, so that was fall, that was like summer fall of 86. We hung out a little bit, but again, didn't like each other, so that was that. We never really saw each other again. Maybe I saw him once in a while. Yeah. Something with Ben, and I can't really remember. Mm-hmm. But I just, the vivid memories I have are him coming to visit in Rochester. He was with his girlfriend. We got drunk. We kind of had fun that night. Um, but he was really intense. He was a different kind of like, I would say that intensity, a little bit sobriety, but this is a whole other, he was just fucking angry. You know, especially in the door, like when I hung out a little bit in NYU. A lot of reading. You know, I feel like when you, I was never with you when you weren't sober, so I, I I would imagine you were a silly drunk. Yeah, I thought I was kind of a silly drunk, but I was a bit. I was a maroon. I was all fucked up. You know, I was I was really self-centered and opinionated. You know, I think I had a chip on my shoulder. You know, I thought it was a genius, like all that bullshit. One night, both Phil and I showed up at Bennett at separate times, mm-hmm. really drunk, and Bennett. Like, what was it like? Both of us like, boy, those guys really need help. Yeah. And then Phil, I think, went to rehab in no, on November in November 4th of 89. Right. Uh, and got sober. And then I went to, I got sober in April of 1990. Well, I tried my first time around time. I mean, I was dabbling in AA until then, but I gave it a real go in yeah. April of 90. Yeah. And got like six months. And during those six months, but I wasn't really invested. Like, I went to 45 meetings in 90 days, so I didn't do that 90 and 90 would recommend it. Right. I had a sponsor, never called him. I didn't work any of the steps. Mm-hmm. Didn't have a fellowship at all. Yeah. But during that time, like, I was at an audition, and I ran into Phil. And we, he was like, hey, man, how you doing? He's like, good, how are you? And I guess maybe heard from Bennett that I wasn't drinking. So I think he said, I hear you're not drinking. I was like, yeah. He's like, are you going to meetings? I said, not really. He's like, I'm going to go to a meeting later. You want to come with me? And he was really sweet. He was like a whole new Phil. And I said, um, no, um, I'm fine. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And then another time I was coming out of the subway at Columbus Circle, and he was on his way to Fireside, which became a meeting where I eventually met all my friends right. and developed this great fellowship. Right. He's like, hey, I'm going to the meeting Fireside. Do you want to come? And I said, no, you know, I'm fine. <laughs> and again, he was, like, really sweet. And it was like a, a new dude. Right. And then I, I was, like, driving in a cab in Soho, and like two blocks away, I'm down like on Prince Street, um, he was playing stickball. I saw him in the distance, wow. you know? And so it was like this message, like you know, whatever, the universe was trying to connect us. And then um, I finally, and then I drank again, 
And I went back to AA on November 4th, 1990. So I drink again, and I come back in, and I, uh, one, like one night or two nights, and then I go back to AA on November 4th, I go to the meeting Soho, and then two days later I went to Fireside. I'm in Fireside, and all, you know Oliver Dow, right? Oliver Dow is sitting in front of me. And he goes, Steven, right? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, I met you a couple years ago, you were doing a play, and my girlfriend had a friend who was in the play, and the four of us went out together. I was like, oh yeah, how you doing, man? And then Phil walks in, and he just celebrated a year on November 4th. So all of a sudden I have these two guys that I now know. And then Kevin okay. became my sponsor, who I really called, so I had all these tools. And then I was like, the fire set every day, and that's when Phil and I became, like Phil, Kevin, and I became the three musketeers. We hung out all the time for like a year. And we were very similar, like very similar sense of humor, you know, we were lighter, we were in recovery, we were like seeing our, like, the insanity we had before. So yeah, man, he, and he became my brother, you know, I loved, loved dearly. Just like a relationship with men, like where it was like a loving, you know, we would hug each other. You know, I like, cause I never had friends that I hugged. Me and my dad, not affection like that. When I was a little boy, it was mind blowing, you know, and I needed so desperately, and all of a sudden I got these friends we're hugging, we're saying, I love you. And eventually, we would like kiss each other on the cheek. And then, and, you know, and then I brought that into my family. I would hug my brothers. My dad was still, my dad would sort of give the push away hug. We'd go for a hug and he kind of pushes it away. Yeah, the push away hug. Stephen has many talents, and sleeping on planes appears to be one of them. The aircraft has long since transitioned to nocturnal mode, yet I'm up for a long while in the darkened cabin with my Walkman on taking a strange delight in the assembled unconscious, their guileless expressions and childlike vulnerability. I doze a little, and in the morning, as we descend through papery light, I nudge Stephen awake. We land in deep plane and everybody has got a great ass. I mean everybody. The baggage handler, the person on the payphone, all the Calipigian ideal. Right past baggage claim, just as Tommy told us, is the duty-free shop, where we purchase cases of scotch, vodka, gin, and rum, a bottle of aged cognac for one of Isabella's uncles, and some top-shelf champagne. Tommy will pay us back with folding money. The man has a big Brazilian wedding to throw and wants to keep costs down. Soon, there's a tap on my shoulder. Tommy, in a white polo shirt tucked into belted khakis, hair thinning a bit but eyes full of twinkle, greets me with David an ancient nickname. We exchange a heartfelt abrazo. Stephen's approach and hug, a small theatrical event in itself, involves outstretched arms, a quick glance to the right, outstretched arms, a look the other way, and finally, sudden, rapturous recognition and a leap into Tommy's arms like Yogi Berra and Don Larson after the perfect game in the 1956 World Series. We load our stuff into Tommy's no-frills sedan and off we go, highway driving under brilliant blue skies on a winding asphalt freeway, catching glimpses of palm trees, pale-hued apartment buildings, and mountain shapes in the distance. We zoom through a tunnel cut into blackish stone. Hey, Bosus, Tommy says, and across a bridge. On the right is a pedestrian walkway, teeming with bicyclists, joggers, walkers, and strollers. Beyond that is the glorious sea. My God, so blue. It's polluted, Tommy says, retrieving his cigar from the ashtray and lighting it. I push the car lighter back in when he's done and retrieve a joint from my shirt pocket. You still smoking that shit, Tommy says. 
Stephen, I say, turning to the rear. You don't mind, do you? I don't mind. Smoking 17 years, Clem, Tommy says, employing an even more ancient nickname. That's almost half your life. You could at least, you know, see what life is like without it. Everything in moderation, I say. You couldn't pull off the moderation part. You just hide it better. I always got caught. That was my thing, he says. Remember? Remember that first time when I stole Betty's Buick and got chased home by the cops? Yeah, and you took a hard ride into your driveway and crashed into the back of your dad's Seville? Yeah, yeah, I do recall that, now that you mention it. <laughs> they say history doesn't repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. By the time his driving put the kibosh on his drinking, Tommy had amassed an impressive history of automotive malfeasance. In an echo of that formative police chase in Tenafly, his final act also involved his mother's Buick, albeit a later model. Tommy liked to borrow Betty's car and stash it in the parking garage located beneath our apartment and break it out on Saturday nights, the better to hit the circuit of bars and pubs dotting the east and west villages. He knew he wasn't exactly flawless behind the wheel once he'd had a few, but when the choice was between operating a private vehicle or heading from bar to bar on foot or blowing good money on a cab, Tommy would invoke his God-given right to drive, while impaired, every time. Till the night he ended up in the tombs, New York's notorious house of detention, on a DUI charge. Tommy spent 30 hours in police custody, five of them in a holding cell, tightly handcuffed. He felt the pain for months afterward. But for the bulk of his time, he was in the tombs, free of cuffs, but shackled and stripped of his shoelaces, in a dark, dank and dangerous place. As fights broke out, he shrank back into a corner, struggling not to pee his pants, trying to grasp the reality that no one was to blame but himself. Here he was, corralled among people for whom he had nothing but abject disgust. No empathy, just contempt. These were the scum of the earth as far as he was concerned, not the meek who would inherit it, and he was wholly unprepared for the dissonance between how he saw himself and these piss-stinking circumstances. The shame of it, the not knowing when he'd get out, it shook him to his Catholic core. While agonizing, the crawl of time enabled Tommy to take stock. Of the half-dozen bars he'd hit before making his way, unsteadily to be sure, out of that dive on Avenue A between 4th and 5th, whose name he could not recall, of climbing into his car and turning on the ignition, already dreaming of his king-sized steely posturepedic, of the times he'd gotten behind the wheel in a similar state and managed to get home in one piece, of things he'd done and said while extremely drunk, bad acts he'd justified doing while completely hammered. Surely he ruminated on how he would explain this ignominy to his mother, who expected her car back on Sunday by early afternoon for shopping purposes per the agreement she had made him sign. And who knows, maybe the eye incident, which is how we've come to refer to the time he shot a paperclip out of a rubber band into my right eye and I nearly lost the sight in it. Maybe even that penetrated his consciousness during those hours of incarceration. Not that any alcohol was involved in that. We were in fifth grade. But it took him 15 years, during a bender at my college townhouse over Christmas break, to fully own up to the deed. Until then, Tommy had maintained he'd only shot a rubber band at me that day. Though I knew better, and Dr. Selleck had confirmed that something pointing and sharp had pierced my eyeball, I never pressed Tommy on the issue. Hearing him blurt out, it was a paperclip, even in a fever dream of coke and booze, meant a lot to me. That year, I wrote a paper about Tommy's personal evolution for my junior year developmental psych seminar and got a B+.
we emerged from another rock-hewn tunnel into a postcard-worthy vision. Pale sand and turquoise water under an immense blue sky. To the left, a swanky spread of gleaming white hotels, multi-hued shops and cafes, and a flow of scantily clad passerby to the right. Straight ahead, many miles in the distance, a pair of mountains, their upper halves obscured by a heavenly mist, are all that restricts our view westward toward the horizon. With no small trace of pride, Tommy welcomes us to the most expensive real estate in South America. Being a businessman in Brazil is all this Irish-American ever wanted to do. He'd visited a few times as a kid with his dad, spent summers during high school learning his warp from his weft in textiles factories, majored in international business, and cultivated connections with his father's friends, which included the owner of Brazil's largest sugarcane plantation. Arriving here five years ago, Tommy was determined to make good on a lifelong ambition. His first big score was claw crane games, those arcade and bowling alley coin sucks. When you try to pick up a prize with a clamping device suspended from the chain, you jerk around with a joystick. He had these machines in locations all over Rio, and people would line up to stuff them with tokens purchased with their hard-earned hey eyes in hope of retrieving a plush toy or other low-cost novelty. It was, as they say, a license to print money. At the height of the operation, Tommy had 20 employees, including an armed guard in charge of safe delivery of the weekly earnings to the bank. But that was a few years ago. These days he's into import-export. No security required. Tommy pulls over and we duck out of the car and into the dazzling light and seductive heat of Rio, a warm weather city with warm weather natives. There's an expression here for days when the temperature drops below 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Fraser frio. Not today though, and not anytime soon. As Tommy gets our luggage brought up and parks the car, Stephen and I push through the revolving door and into the lobby where we're instantly chilled. Filtered through the lobby's thick smoked glass exterior, Rio's impossible daylight is reduced to a mere suggestion. Oliver is there to greet us. He has a firm jaw and a fierce look-you-in-the-eye delivery. I can see why Tommy looks up to him. Tommy returns from parking the car, finishing up a call. The portable phone, a recent purchase, has become indispensable, especially given the complexity of matrimonial logistics. Tommy's appearance inspires us all to lean in for a long hug, and more than a few cheeks are kissed. That night, we take in a lengthy, decadent dinner at Porcao, a churrascaria, where cuts of meat are cooked on spits and served tableside by eager waiters. You communicate with them through a plastic disc with the restaurant's mascot, a pig of course, saying either yes please or no thank you. You leave it face up and you will keep receiving huge helpings of meat. So mind your card unless you want a cardiac incident. Tommy has always possessed a healthy appetite. No longer for drugs, but meat is still on the table and Porcao is like an opium den for meat enthusiasts. Tommy's typical method of drug consumption also took the form of a multi-course meal. He'd sit behind his big desk, which he'd array with a six-pack of Heineken, three darks, three regulars, a half-ounce of reefer in a Ziploc bag, a bottle of Johnny Walker, and a pack of Winstons. Maybe some blow on a good night. TV was always on, sound always off, Pink Floyd cranking. From there, a smorgasbord of puffs and swigs and glugs, snorts on a good night. The variety was what mattered, the mixing, the matching, ping-ponging of effects, and the attainment, usually anyway, if you put your mind to it, of that perfectly calibrated buzz. Tommy may be sober, but he's still smorgasbording his ass off. 
He rejects the cuts that don't quite move him, but fills up nonetheless, cueing me along the way. Try the lamb chops. Get some brisket. Make sure to get a return trip on that lobster tail. True, lobster is not a traditional meat product, and chortiscadia basically translates to barbecue, but pork cow is all about opulence. How can you not have surf and turf? My yoga practice has been going great guns lately, and I'm eating a lot of tofu and broccoli these days, but loosened by a few caipirinhas, I indulge in the meatathon with little prodding, until I just can't anymore. Tonight is the closest we'll get to a bachelor party, so Tommy takes us to an upscale nightclub frequented by prostitutes. Organizing this sort of thing usually falls to the best men, but Stephen and I are out of our depth, and it's up to the man himself to throw some sin into the evening. My image of prostitution, starting with the phrase, the world's oldest profession, is based on a cliché of sad cases selling their wares on the midtown blocks near the Hudson River dockside. But none of that desperation is apparent tonight. Prostitution is legal in Brazil. These are independent contractors. Sure, some will take you for all you're worth if you give them the chance, but a plumber will do the same thing. That's what I'm telling myself, at least. In the time it takes to order a round of bucklers and a real beer for me, Oliver, who's built like a fit cop, is deep in conversation with a woman in a pale blue gown who happens to be a few inches taller. Tommy, Phil, and Steven circle the wagons, unwilling to tempt fate with a potentially scandalous dalliance. I scope the room wide-eyed. Soon I'm chatting with Jessica, who's about 20, mostly in Spanish, and it's easy. She wants to know why we're here, and I tell her the whole story. How Tommy met Isabella on Ipanema Beach, just like in the song, and how Phil's a famous actor, and Steven's also an actor, and I'm from Nueva York, and this is my first time in Rio. Jessica is no elegant sylph like the one Oliver's making out with. Almost pale, with shoulder-length reddish-blonde hair, she comes up to my breastbone and has the vibe of a genial college girl, which is what she is. She's studying textile manufacturing, small world, at a local college. And her real name, she tells me, is Morgana. Too soon for my liking, the guys signal that they're ready to leave this den of iniquity. Morgana and I share a lingering kiss and make a plan to meet on the beach across from Marina Palace on Wednesday afternoon. Back in our air-cooled home base, kicking back in mutual twin beds and still stuffed from dinner, Stephen demands a blow-by-blow -blow of my conversation with Morgana, who he keeps calling Ahua, like Ralph Cifaretto on The Sopranos. I oblige, although there isn't much to tell. Tall and tan and young and lovely, the chick from Ipanema goes walking, he croons. I cut in with, Choppy saw her on that beach, and he said, wow. And just like that, we set about rewriting the girl from Ipanema from a Tommy-centric vantage. The song's been covered by everybody from Lou Rawls to Detroit Tigers pitching ace Denny McLean, so why not us? Legendarily sung in English by Astra Gilberto, it was a worldwide hit in 1965 and is now one of the most recorded songs in history, right up there with Yesterday, another song in the key of F major, about longing for the unattainable. Verse one comes quickly. Five foot ten and oh so Irish. She's a knockout, Brazilian and stylish. He saw her on that beach, and he said, wow. Verse two is tougher. The opening we really like, but what to rhyme with lawyer? He's in business, she's a lawyer. And just like Becky and Tom Sawyer, they were meant to be. 
oh my, and how. We reached the bridge and dispensed with the laudatory tone in favor of slow-roasting Tommy in the time-tested tradition of rehearsal dinner smack talk. Maybe it's all the red meat we've just consumed at work. Whoa, 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 Isabella. Tom's one lucky fella. To end up with a lady like that. Not too bad for a tenorfly brat. That's right. Tommy, he grew up in Jersey. He raised hell and Lord have mercy. He was not always like you see him right now. Tom got drunk for his Little League tryout. Crashed the car and he put my eye out. And for your patience, Betty dear, please take a bow. I flip off the lights and we give it a final run-through, like a pair of nerd boys on the first night of summer stock. Stephen farts a trombone blast and we guffaw like dorks. Ever tell you about the night I farted on Tommy? You never did. Well, what I failed to take into account the night I farted on Tommy was that he had grown up with sisters. Farting was like a second language for me and my brother. It was a form of greeting. So we're in grammar school at the sleepover at our friend Tony D's house and I lay a good one on Tommy just in a brotherly way, and he just flips out. Storms out of the room, calls up Mama. Five minutes later, she shows up in a squeal of tires, and he's out the door. He shamed me, man. He shamed me. And knowing that Betty knew, too, about the farting, made it even more shameful. Ah, well, Tommy's just not a farter, he says. We just have to accept him for who he is and take it one day at a time. And he blasts out another one for good measure. Next up, I've got cold feet as my meeting with Morgana approaches, but Philip Seymour Hoffman makes my day. And who knows, maybe sparks will fly with the sea goddess. Check out IamTheFly.org for more. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend.